Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to Dwell, a Cersei Institute podcast for homeschool moms by homeschool moms. And today, we have a special guest who is a homeschooling dad. Or I should say a former homeschooling dad, because all three of his kids have graduated and their family's homeschooled. So we want to welcome Dr. Matthew Bianco to our podcast today. And um, I have known Matthew or Matt as I first met him for several years. Um, he's in his eighth year of working for Cersei, and he is also one of the head mentors in our apprenticeship program. And Matt and his wife, Patty, who also works for Cersei, have three grown children. Um, their two sons, Alec and Andrew, work for Cersei in different capacities. And their daughter, Ada, is getting ready to start her master's program at Hillsdale in classical education. So this is a family that that lives out what they believe in comes to education. And so Karen and I are really excited to have um, Matthew here with us today to talk about the fourth in our list of the four elements that make up classical education, and that is responsibility for the Western tradition. And so we thought Matthew would be a great resource to have on here today to just get us started and, and explain what do we mean when we say that, a responsibility for the tradition. So take it away. Yeah, well, thank you, Renee, for that introduction, and Renee and Karen for inviting me on, and appreciate Thanks the. Uh, here. Yeah, yeah, of course. Thank you. Um, you know, I like I like to hear the sound of my own voice, so this is a great opportunity for me to uh, get to do that. <laughs> uh, although, although to be fair, one of my children is an IT guy, so he's kind of the black sheep of the family as far as the whole classical education thing goes, but. Um, Somebody has to know how to do things. And, and of course, it's the middle child, right? So, <laughs> um, my kid, though, he's wonderful. Probably, probably, probably one of my one of my three favorites. Yeah. So, we want to talk about the Western tradition and the responsibility for the Western tradition. You know, the, I mean, the Western tradition, I think, is like kind of the short and sweet kind of definition or whatever statement of what it is. <clears throat> 
is that it's it's that which is being handed on to us, that which is being passed on to us, uh, which is you know the word tradition comes from the Latin traducere, so it's it's that kind of handing on, passing on, and so it's I mean it's essentially it's um it's the books, the art, the music, the ideas, the philosophy, the theology, you know all of that stuff. It's just kind of getting passed down um, from one generation to the next, from one part of the part of the Western world to the next and so on is what is, is what is coming to us. So it's, it's that thing that's being passed on. But of course what happens by circumstances of history is that not every single thing that was ever written or sung or recited or created or sculpted or painted, not every single one of those things makes it this far through history. And it's, um, it's you know there's a there's a, an old story about the library of alexandria historical story about the library of alexandria that it you know it burned down and all of these it was filled with scrolls books you know but in scroll form and they and it burned down and all of these scrolls were lost but they actually have we actually have some records that indicate what was in that library and so we know that in the library of, of alexandria were things like the iliad and the odyssey also, the Bible, the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Old Testament, was in the Library of Alexandria. And there are all kinds of books, but like the number of, like they know the number of copies or they have, you know, records to kind of indicate the number of copies. And in the Library of Alexandria, there were about 800 copies of the Iliad for every one copy of any other book, like the next most popular book. Uh, or the next most popular scroll. So it, it, it's it's a huge ratio, right? <laughs> Percentage of the library was made up of Homer's works. But but that means that because Homer's works were so popular and so well-received and so frequently studied and read and memorized and recited, that there are so many copies of it that it it makes it to today, whereas something that only had one copy of it there might not might not we might not have that today it might not exist today because of that so so part of how something makes it this far through history is is based on how well it was received in its own generation and then in the subsequent generations uh, that followed and that that you know the the proliferation of copies of it helps it to to extend so we know that something that we have today is in all likelihood here because it was so important to the the generation that had it and or the generations that immediately followed it until now. So that's part of that's part of what what the Western tradition is. Um, it's all of that stuff, right? All of all of the even the even even practices, rituals and rites and practices, right, that come down like the way the way people worshiped God, the way people thought about God, but also the way people celebrated holidays and festivals and all, all of those things, right? They're all, these are all kind of practices that are getting stretched down and I mean, handed down. And even today in our own world, right? There's things that we can look around and say, well, if you're, if you're looking at the American tradition and what's getting passed down from generation to generation, well, we know that kids, that, 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 if kids get on a on a vehicle to get to school, it's going to be big and long and yellow, 
right? That's part of the American tradition, uh, the culture that's getting, gets hand down. Our, our garden hoses are green and whatever, like all that kind of weird stuff, right? Is part of the, part of the tradition. But the, the real thing that we're talking about is being handed down and respected. Um, is this, these, these kind of great bodies of, of literature and art and philosophy and theology that are being handed down and, and maintained through across the, the generation. So that's part of, um, I mean, that's basically what the Western tradition is. So Matthew, is that the same thing as when we, when we, when we use the word paideia to refer to kind of the culture, the, what we're in the, the water we're swimming in right now, is that the same thing? I, I think so. I mean, I, I would, I, 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 am thinking that you can almost kind of use those words synonymously. The, um, you know, the Padea is going to be inclusive of kind of anything that teaches us. And actually, I think it's in, in, um, what is, doesn't Doug Wilson have a book called Padea something, something Padea? I can't remember. Anyways, um, I think it's in his book on Padea that, where, I've, where he used the example of green hoses <laughs> and it just stuck in my head. So even there, right. Um, but yeah, I think that, 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 that there's a, there's a synonymousness to it. Although probably when we think of Paideia, we think more about the educational side of it. Right. Whereas the tradition, right. we think of the tradition probably as more as more of the artifacts they get handed down to us, the books, right? Whereas Padea is more the educational aspect. So it, in our minds, it probably includes you know, curriculum and the way we teach and the, the way we assess and stuff like that. But um, it's probably like shades of, of differentiation in the meaning. There's so much overlap of what they are that they're pretty close, pretty similar. So if it's so pervasive, um, are we in this current culture, are we in danger of losing it? Because it, it, you know, the whole movement of classical education seems to be, well, we call it a renewal. So are we renewing something because it's in danger of being lost? Or when I, so for example, when I was in school in sixties and seventies, we didn't read Homer. Right. We barely read the Greek myths. I remember one in my ninth grade English class, one, one unit on the Greek myths. Yeah. And so, but now, uh, well, just talk, talk about that, Mike. <laughs> well, I mean, we're in Canada, so, you know. That's true. Canadians. Oh, Canadians. No, but I, I mean, it's probably true here as well, you know, the, um, Jeremy Tate, the CEO of CLT, the classical, classical learning test, uh, you know, I've, I've seen him comment multiple times on Twitter, for example, that uh, Twitter, that great repository of the Western tradition. Um, <laughs> I've seen Jeremy Tate comment on there multiple times how you could literally go from kindergarten all the way through your undergraduate degree without ever reading Homer or Virgil or Dante or even Shakespeare. Like, just just normal today. Probably Shakespeare is not true in you know, 30 years ago, but, um, but today you could literally go through the whole thing. So it's, it's 
It, I think that is that is the case. Look, the, 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 there's a um, there's a there's two ways of looking at the world. I, well, there's probably more than two, but there's two ways that I'm going to talk about looking at the world today. Uh, one is that everything that we're doing is better, right? It's a kind of an evolutionary mindset, right? We look at the world in, with a with a evolutionary lens, and so in in you know biologically speaking, in evolution, the the argument is that that things are getting better. They're getting more, they're adapting better to their surroundings. Um, and, and so they're, they're an improvement over the previous version of themselves, whatever that means. Right. And then, but then in, in, in the realm of ideas, what that means is that every, every idea that follows a previous idea is a better version of that previous idea. Like it's, it's solving the previous ideas problems, for example. So you take that with um, philosophy, for example, and you would say, well, whatever Socrates actually said in his dialogues in real life with people, Plato improved upon that when he wrote them down. And then Aristotle improved upon that when he taught, when he taught in his school. And then um, Augustine improved upon that when he had, you know, um, absorbed it into Christianity. And then uh, Boethius improves upon that when he writes his works. And then Aquinas improves upon that when he writes his works. And then Kant improves upon that and Hegel and so on to today. And there's this like evolutionary progress that's taking place in the history of ideas even. That's one way of looking at the world. But when you look at that, when you look at the world in that way, what you end up doing is saying, well, if this version's better and it's solved all the previous version's problems, I don't really need the previous versions anymore, right? Just like in biology, they go away and I'm left with this new thing. I'm left with the humans. I don't need this, this thing that existed between apes and humans anymore. I just need the human. Get rid of that. I can, if I've got, if I've got Hegel and Hegel really is an improvement upon all those people that went before him. Theoretically, I can get rid of all those people before him and I can just kind of destroy that foundation and just build new, build new, build new. And the other way of thinking about it is, is it's kind of not, it's not evolutionary. It's, it's more, um, it's more of, of a, of a, it's, it's more of a timeless distinction in the sense of, of here's, here's God, here's the Holy Spirit entering into, I, I don't, I don't. I'm going to use this as a way of describing it, but I don't mean to imply in any way that the Holy Spirit inspired Plato's writings or, or Aristotle's or anything like that. Um, it, that, you know, the Bible is the inspired word of God. And that, that's, I mean, I know I recognize that, but in a sense, this is God's outpouring or, 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 and pre presenting, presenting reality, the truth of reality through this cultural this this cultural group, this people in this time and in this place. And here he is doing again, and here he is doing again, and here he is doing it again, and here he is doing it again. And then and then th it's it's like a collection of the um this this the the that the all of those different cultures understanding of reality that is coming together into a great conversation. Not not I'm replacing the previous one because I've got this better one now, but but it's all building upon like it's standing on the shoulders of giants, as it were, right? And just continuing to build out this understanding of reality uh, by bringing all of it together into the great conversation. And and I think what's happening now with with this kind of post um, 
this this the world that exists post evolution post the introduction of evolutionary ideas and progressivism in that sense has has it's infected the way we even view ideas right and our artifacts and so there is this kind of we can destroy and replace destroy and replace rather than rather than build and stand upon and and use foundations as a as a way of building and so as a result, I think what you find in the late 19th century, in the 20th century, and today, and especially today, is this pattern of destroy and rebuild, destroy and rebuild, destroy and rebuild, destroy and rebuild. Um, and the classical renewal is a way of saying, whoa, 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 let's get that foundation we had and and go back to building on it. It's good for us. It, it, in fact, it's so good for us as Christians to build upon that tradition, to receive that tradition with gratitude and, and reverence that um, respect with respect that the, in the, in the fourth century AD. So, you know, Constantine converts to Christianity and then converts whatever that means, right. Converts the Roman empire to a Christian empire um, or, or legalizes Christianity and makes Christianity a kind of a, a legitimate and an influential force within the empire. And then after he dies, shortly after he dies, uh, Julian, uh, there's a, a guy named Julian becomes the empire or the emperor. And Julian was trained in classical, like any classical university in Athens. Um, at the same time that he was there getting an education, so also was uh, Basil of Caesarea and Gregory of Nazianzen. So these two, uh, these two early church apologists, theologians, authors, right, wrote a ton of stuff um, in school in Athens, getting a classical education at the same time as Julian. They go home and become, you know, leaders in the church and theologians and writers and do, creating all this stuff. He goes home and becomes the emperor. And one of the first things he does is he passes an edict, making it illegal for Christians to teach Homer and Virgil. Because the Christians were the Christians were growing in when they taught in, in when they were teaching Homer and Virgil. The, the church, the church itself, was growing. It was growing in its understanding. It was growing in its um, popularity. It was growing in its numbers. It was growing in its uh, uh, it, it, you know its theology was being strengthened. All of this was happening because of this. This and and pagans were converting in droves, right? And Julian is trying to. Julian's called Julian the apostate because he was trying to revert Rome back to a pagan empire. He was trying to undo what Constantine did. So he bans Christians from teaching from teaching Homer and Virgil because so many it was it was making it impossible for the people to be converted back to paganism. Um so so there there's an example where where the 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 pagans, the apostates didn't want the Christians having a classical education. And then the Christians were getting a classical education and using it to grow the kingdom. And now today, we're just voluntarily giving it away. We're just saying, nah, we don't want to teach those pagans. It's bad. We don't need them. They're bad for Christianity. No, no, they were good for Christianity. The pagans tried to stop it. So, Matt, how do we um, – we use the word responsibility for the tradition. And so we have a responsibility to pass down what is worth handing down. Um, and we talk about a conversation with the past. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm gonna I'm gonna ask an obvious question, and but does that mean we unquestionably accept and approve of everything that our ancestors have done, or are we allowed to say, hmm, maybe that practice was not something we should we should pass down, right? So how how right. do we respectfully and responsibly interact with the past in a way that still lets us cultivate wisdom and virtue right now in the present? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good question because obviously there are things written in his in historical documents, especially um, especially in in more recent ones, right? The um, you know the, those those guys that are that are kind of being leaned upon for the founding of the United States, for example. Those those political thinkers, political philosophers that were being leaned on. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of things going on there, Descartes and 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 Locke and and stuff that is being used to, uh, they're 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 gateways into you know a, a kind of atheism or a kind of rejection of the tradition, but 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 even outside of those guys, right? There's stuff within the tradition earlier on that's like, you know, not not ideas that we would embrace today, not ideas that we would. Um, that we would hold to today or practices that we would hold to today. And yet, and yet the whole tradition still, still comes to us, how, how it comes to us. And our responsibility has to be to receive the whole thing with gratitude. And then I think is, you know, probably the first, the first response is to receive the whole thing with gratitude. Even let me me use an analogy maybe to, to bring some, make it a little bit easier to see, like, my my family celebrated Christmas a certain way, all when I was growing up, right? From my birth to, you know, the time I left and started my own family. My mom and dad and my siblings and I, we celebrated Christmas a very specific way. There was a Bianco way of doing Christmas. And I received that. I accepted it. I accepted it. I did it. And then when I, um, when I, when I started my own family, my wife, who had received and accepted with gratitude all of her family's traditions, those two things came together. And I had to, we had to do something about that, right? We couldn't do both of them wholly, fully. We couldn't receive the tradition in its completeness and do it and practice all of it, right? So we had to somehow, we had to somehow marry the two and unite them in a way that was holistic, that made sense, that was right, that was good. Um, and, and, you know, undergirded and supported the kind of family that we were trying to have together. So in some way, that same thing happens, right? You get these ideas come from, coming from Greek pagans. You get these things coming from Roman pagans. You get these things coming from the Christians, the medieval Christians, the Thomists, um, and then the Enlightenment and, and, and the, um, or the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and then modernity, right? All of these things are, these things are coming together and somehow we have to figure out how do we, how do we receive all of that with gratitude and yet discriminate in, in the sense of, of bring it all together and, and use it in my life in a way that, 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 that honors what I've received, but also gives me a holistic and a full view of the world around me. And the, you know, to some extent that it's, I'm not sure that any one of us is wise enough to do that well by ourselves, right? I mean, we are, I mean, we, you know, we, we are like, we have the capacity to do it, right? The, um, 
you know, God has given us the gifts to be rational creatures and reasonable creatures and to discriminate and to, to, um, make decisions and judgments. Uh, but on the other hand, like, I mean, I've, I haven't read everything Aristotle wrote or Aquinas, Augustine wrote or Aquinas wrote. So how do I know what, uh, and how do I know how that's, how that fits and how it's been, been understood to have fit, you know, in the past. So, you know, to some extent I have to be, I have to be patient, I think, and, you know, open-minded about it, um, in, in the, the best sense of that phrase. Uh, but and not, not, I don't want to pass judgment too quickly, right? Like I don't want to reject Homer and Virgil because they don't make sense to me only to find out later on that that was a, a, the exact plan of the atheist was to, of the apostates, right, was to get rid of Homer and Virgil and that will stop the spread of Christianity. And then I just fed into his plan, but, but I just did it, you know, 1800 years later, 1700 years later. <laughs> So Matt, how do you, uh, or what would you, up to, this question has two parts. For somebody who wants to educate themselves, a mom who wants to educate herself, maybe she hasn't read much. Um, maybe she's just entering this world of classical education. What resources are there for her? And then where do you start with children who are, let's say, lower elementary and younger? What 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 are the what is the quote I don't know body of work or canon that that you start with? Yeah, good question. Um, so you know the the I mean probably the first thing is maybe think about some of the resources like you know. If you're if you're trying to if you're going to accept this as one of the four elements of a classical education, right? Then then what you want to do is is attach yourself or or you know find a mentor or somebody who also accepts this as one of the four elements of classical education, who also is 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 or has been working through receiving the tradition with gratitude and but also discriminating, right? Like not not apologizing for its sins, you know, repenting of its sins, but then receiving it and finding the good in it and doing that work. And so, you know, like you two are perfect examples of that. I think like you, you love, you love Christ. You love the tradition. You love education. You love children. You love this, the world that God has gifted to us. And, and you, you yourselves are work, working through that and doing that, right? So listening to you guys or talking to you guys at conferences or whatever would be wonderful. Um, you know, some of the podcasts that Cersei produces or, uh, you know, David and Heidi and Tim and Close Reads, whatever, you know, these, these, these are all people that, that, that are trying to receive the tradition well and love the Lord and are trying to have, um, help people think through this, you know, lean on those people. Um, or find somebody like that in your community or in your church or whatever. The the other side of it is the tradition itself. Like there's some books that are so well accepted and received that you can just you can just open them up and read them, and your mind can be wide open to it and totally receptive to it, and you're you'll be okay. Um, there are some books where you have to be more discriminating and careful when you're reading it, and um, you know thoughtful while you're reading it, you know? So if you're going to read, um, you know, if you're going to read 
Nietzsche, you want to be kind of discriminating when you're reading Nietzsche. Um, but if you're reading Aesop's Fables, man, just full bore with it. And I think that's probably the best place to start is something like Aesop's Fables. Um, I mean, Aesop's Fables clearly celebrates and praises the virtues and it has a it has a very consistent and similar understanding of the virtues to what we would have you know what christianity teaches um it it censures and and you know mocks or ridicules or or rejects the vices and has a similar understanding of what the vices are as what christianity um would teach uh it, it teaches you that things have a nature it teaches you that natures can't change um, it's like the embodiment of Andrew's contemplation of nature talk, you know, it's just, it's just there. Right. And it's like, kids will read this and they will, and they'll, they'll get it. And you, you read the story, you stop, you ask them what the moral is. Don't read the one moral that's in there. Ask them what the moral is. They start thinking about those sorts of things. Um, and then, and then the other thing too, that it teaches you though, is that it teaches you what crowness is and dogness is. This is part of the nature side of it, but it teaches you what a crow is. It teaches you what a dog is. It teaches you what a, a fox is. And, and it teaches you those things like not, not like analytically and scientifically, but it teaches you those things be through beauty, through poetry, through story. And so you start, you start feeling in your bones, in the marrow of your bones, what it, what, what a fox is. And then, um, and, and then, but it's those ideas about what a fox is, what a dog is, what a crow is, et cetera, that makes its way into the fairy tales, that makes its way into Bible stories, that makes its way into the novels that you're reading from the, you know, 18 and early 1900s. Um, the, that, those kind of those kind of images and meanings and symbols are there. So you you read something like I had a I had a high school teacher tell me one time that she was reading um, the Scarlet Letter, and she was trying to explain to her students what the color of the headstone symbolized, and the kids were like, "What? No, it no, it doesn't. You just think it does. You just you just want it to mean that. You don't know that that Hawthorne meant that." And so the next day, she came into class with a dictionary of symbolism. And she was like, yeah, see, it says right here in this dictionary. And the kids were like, so? Who cares what that dictionary says? That's just the, you got that from the dictionary. And it, and, but the dictionary was written by people who just thought that. They still don't know that that's what Hawthorne meant. And she's telling me this story. And I'm like, man, the only way the kids could possibly think that is because they're not well-read enough. If they if they if if they grow up on Aesop's fables and fairy tales and all of that stuff that that's just imbued embedded all these symbols you know and this this the meaning of these things is embedded in all of that then they get to they get to the Scarlet Letter and you can't help it it just pops because he's writing all of that with with that background in his mind you know anyways I don't know why I was making such a strong argument in favor of Aesop's fables, but it, but it's probably because I love them. Well, you're you're making an argument in, in favor of the fact that we live in a world that does have meaning, mm. that we are more than just matter yeah. material. Yeah. And when you grow up being raised on what you said, stories, music, art, poetry, then that becomes a part of who you are. And and I really appreciate the fact that you you listed all of those things as part of the tradition. So we're not talking just about the study of government's battles and mm -hmm, politics mm -hmm. down through the years. When we talk about Western civilization, it's all mm -hmm. of that. And so 
you know, when we want to raise children on truth, goodness, and beauty, they need to be exposed to things that are beautiful, like beautiful art and beautiful music. Uh, amen. Right. So all, all of the, all of those things, you know, moms that are listening to this and you're thinking, where can I start? Start with a beautiful painting and talk about it. Start with a beautiful symphony and listen to it. Learn American folk songs, mm-hmm. right? Because that's part of the art too. And that has been passed Absolutely. down. So, uh, that's all good. So I have a devil's advocate question for you. So Canadians. So is um is the Western tradition that obviously comes from Europe, particularly Greece and Rome, is that quote better than the cultures that traditions that come from say the East? <laughs> like like the Eastern time zone or <laughs> Well, I don't mean <laughs> yeah, like Boston. No, <laughs> I'm much more. Big, I'm much a bigger a fan of the East Coast than I am of the West Coast, but only because yeah. I live here. So, well, and you have the New York Yankee there behind your desk. Um, no, like you, you can't know. help that, Karen. We love him anyway. I know. I know. I just ignore that big NY. Um, you know, then say Japan, because so, for example. I used, with my third graders, I used uh, Susan Wise Bauer, The Story of the World. Mm-hmm. And the, that's four volumes. And in the one on the Middle Ages, she included in there stories from China and Australia and Japan. And because the book was too long for the number of weeks I had <laughs> in the year, yeah. I skipped some of those stories because I didn't have time to give them the time. And it's like, hmm, I skipped the stories about Japan and Australia. You know? The prison colony? Yeah. I don't believe yep. So because, because of course, because I, I you can't so closely follow the thread back yeah. to Greece and Rome in those other cultures. And it's not to say that they don't have something to offer, but somehow you don't. You don't follow them back to for for you know our architecture, our politics. It's all yeah. come through Europe, through you know going back through the Renaissance and Middle Ages to, to that part of the world, and of course that's where Christianity was born, also. So in that way, it all fits together. But sometimes I I don't really have a good answer in my own mind for oh why not China? Why don't we give China as much time as we do Greece and Rome? you know i i'm i'm sympathetic to the question of by choosing western traditions like greece and rome and the medieval europe over china and japan and you know africa are we um are we declaring one civilization, one culture better than the other? And I'm and I'm and I'm sympathetic to the argument to the question because I've 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 heard arguments for both sides of that, and they both make points worth considering. Uh, but in the end, I don't think that has to be the question because in the end, I think you have to teach people the culture that they're in. And, um, 
you know, if I was if I were a classical school teacher in China, I would start with Chinese traditions, Chinese cultural artifacts. I would want them to receive their tradition with gratitude and with reverence and with respect and with and with responsibility. And if I were teaching in Japan, I would want the same thing. Um, I mean, to some extent, you know, again, as an analogy, it's it's kind of like the family, right? My my children learn what it means to be a Bianco long before they ever learned what it meant to be a Kern or a Mathis or a Smith or a Johnson or anybody else. Um, they learn what it means to be a Bianco. And then when, and then they learn what it means to be a Bianco in somebody else's home, because that looks different. And then they learn what it's like when they're in that home, they learn how to, you know, having a sleepover or something, right. They learn how to, how, how those people do their things and then they get buried and they learn how to do it in both families and bring it together. And, you know, all of that stuff, right. There's a, um, and, and it spreads, right. It spreads from their, their home to their neighborhood, to the state, to the country, and then, you know, to Europe and then to Greece and Rome, um, their understanding grows, but it's following this. Let's call it a river. They're following this river back to its headwaters. And, mm -hmm. You know, in some sense, that's what's happening in, I mean, that, that same sort of pattern needs to happen in China or Japan or wherever, right? They need to follow the river back to its headwaters. The thing is, I think the headwaters eventually end up back in the Middle East and, um, and you end up back in Genesis somewhere, right? And then, yeah. and then from there, the, 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 you're, you're, you know, you're, if, Again, follow the river analogy, right? You have these four rivers that come out of Eden and they spread to the four corners of the earth. You follow the, your river back to its headwaters and you're all back at the same place. But now that I know my river, I can go down the other, whichever other river I want. I can go down the river to, you know, if I'm in coming from the West, I can go down the river to China or down the river to Africa or, or over to the Slavic world or wherever it would be, um, you know, in the analogy and the person coming from China can follow the headwaters back up and then go down into Africa or come to the West or whatever. Um, I, I just, I just feel like that's probably the, the, the appropriate way to do it. So that I think the reason we need to do it this way is because this is where we are. Um, and I, you know, and it, and it becomes tricky, right? Because if you're, if you're living in America, but you're, but you're part of a religious tradition, that's different, right? Like, um, you know, there's a lot of Russian Orthodox people in the United States or, or, um, Muslims, Jews, whatever, right? Like, how do you, how do you, or Chinese people, right? How do you, and you're putting your kids in a classical school, how do you orient that, right? Like, how do you find yourself to respect the Western tradition as a whole, but I'm also attached to this other tradition through, through my religious beliefs or through my, you know, my fam familial background, um, you know, I mean, I think there it gets a little bit more complicated, and yet the Chinese family living in the United States or the Jewish family living in the United States or the Orthodox Russian family living in the United States, they're still living in the United States, and this is this is the tradition they're going to be a part of or they're going to live, grow up in so and live in. So this is the tradition they have to learn. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't do the other stuff at the same time, you know, just they're in pieces or whatever, right? But, yeah. It's helpful. Thanks. So we've been going about 35 minutes. Um, anything else that you want to, that we didn't touch on that's really important, Renee, do you have any other questions? No, I, I thank you. And I hope the moms are encouraged to hear this, that it, it's maybe not as hard as you thought it was, but it's also 
maybe more important than you thought it was as well. Yeah, and and I, I just want to say I think you know, Brene, you you expressed the how really well, right? Like just do it, just just read the stories, just listen to the music, just look at the paintings. But I, let me just add this as a note, right, to hopefully encourage you in in that endeavor. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to be able to explain it, um, especially especially with with younger children. But really, anybody, if this is your first time encountering a painting, you don't need to you don't need to analyze it. Just just enjoy it. Just experience it. Um, same thing with a piece of music. If you're trying to listen to Bach. You don't have to understand the mathematics of Bach or whatever. You know, just enjoy the the beauty of the music. And and or or no, let me let me let me. Let me not even say it that way. Just experience the beauty of the music. Sometimes it's not beautiful to us the first time out. Sometimes we don't enjoy it the first time out. Sometimes this seven-minute symphonic piece is boring to me. And I have to just experience it. And then by experiencing it, I can learn to enjoy it over time, right? And, you know, so you don't need to... You don't need to be able to explain any of the Aesop's fables or the fairy tales. You don't need to explain the symbolism, the archetypes, none of that stuff. Just experience them, whether it's the stories or the music or the artwork, whatever it is. Just have those experiences and you're participating in the tradition and you're receiving it uh, with gratitude and, you know, responsibility. And then, and, then, and then later you learn to discriminate and, you know. Yeah, that's really helpful. And then, and then comparing that happens so naturally with children, you know, when they're reading a fairy tale or something, and then they say, Oh, that's just like that other story we read. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's just so organically, every, everything that they experience doesn't have to be a lesson. And (laughs) it's the science of relations from Charlotte Mason, right? Like when they, when they start making those kinds of connections, that's where the, 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 that, natural sense of wonder grows and strengthens and and they become more and more interested in those things i just read in in norms and nobility chapter 11 um david hicks talking about that's how you that's how you cultivate a sense of wonder in a school where students will be motivated to learn not by grades or by by rewards or punishments but by a natural sense of wonder is by letting them learn to make connections letting them make those connections Charlotte Mason science of relations. That's where I wrote my my margin. What he ripped this off from Charlotte Mason. <laughs> so that would be a good place for people to look that up. Charlotte Mason, the yeah. science of yeah. Thank you for being with us, Matt. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You guys and are I wonderful. That, you know, you've given us other things to think about, and can do this again with you sometime. Thank sure. you. For Thank you. And Thanks. Thanks for today. Nice to see you both. Thank you for listening. Here's to home.